Would you please turn to the book of Acts, to chapter 1? And uh, what Kevin said is so absolutely true, and as um, I, it was a bit of a pivot this morning, um, just in that when Jim said, hey, I'm going to be your way, I knew that we wanted to give time for him to be with us. And so I just was going over in my own mind and, and heart before the Lord, uh, what would be an encouraging word for us this morning? And, and what Kevin was just talking about in regards to um, what the Lord or one of the things that the Lord did while we were fasting, it just seemed to be this reoccurring theme of the outward focus of the gospel. Um, me, for me personally, and it was Isaiah 61 was just so on my heart of what the Spirit of God has been given to us for these reasons. And so I want to read from Acts chapter 1 this morning. It's a, it's a well-known text, and I want to just build our faith this morning for a, a short period of time here and hopes to just continue to fan this flame of the beauty of the gospel, of the call of the church, of the need for the church to not just be the church in terms of her distinctiveness. We spent a lot of time in Ezra and Nehemiah talking about the distinctiveness of the people of God the visible witness of the church. The flip side of that coin is the beauty and the power of the message of the church, the proclamation of the gospel, right? And it's easy for us to focus on one to the detriment of the other or to emphasize one over the other. But brothers and sisters, when we talk about being the church and we talk about the urgency for the church to be who she needs to be in this day and age, the reality is that it is both a visible witness and a verbal testimony. And so for our own hearts this morning, just to be reminded, to be captivated again by the beauty of the gospel, to be aware of, of our own sinful state that God has redeemed us from, and, and to remind ourselves that the gospel never ends with us, in that it, it, its intent was never just for us personally to come to salvation. It begins with us because we are just another of the workers, as Kevin said, right? So let's read from Acts chapter 1, and I just want to pull a few things out. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask, Lord, even though perhaps the time is brief this morning in terms of our meditation on your word, we ask that you would do your work, Father. Do your deep work within us. Fan into flame, Lord, 
within this church and within your church, the beauty of the gospel, the joy of confessing it, and the power, Lord, that you have given to confirm it. Remind us again, establish our hearts in truth, Lord, we pray to the glory of your name. Amen. It's interesting when you think about this portion here in Acts chapter 1. So just a quick context is the writer is Luke. He's referring in the beginning to the gospel of Luke that he, his previous writings dealt with everything that Jesus began to do. And we have now a bit of a transitional moment, of course, as we know. And it's what will be in chapter 2 of Acts, the Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit upon the people of uh, the apostles and the disciples and, and, and the people of God who remain and the church is birthed. And so this is a bit of a transition moment here in the beginning of Acts chapter 1. And it's interesting when we read this to consider the fact that these are the very last words of Jesus before he is taken up. And I was thinking about just the significance of that. A man or a woman's last words are usually something that we hang on with anticipation, are they not? Oftentimes, at least when we think about it traditionally, it's someone's final words is going to just epitomize the, 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 and summarize the ethos of their life and what, what it was all about. And so here we find in this moment that Jesus' last words are given to the disciples, and it's instructive. And I was thinking about this as well. It's interesting that he spent 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God and the reality of a post-resurrected Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And the significance, I wonder what it was that he spoke about. Surely he reminded them of what the kingdom is and, and all that he had taught during his ministry on earth. But now here they are for 40 days with resurrected Jesus, teaching them and reminding them of the things of the kingdom in preparation that he would soon leave, that they would now continue in his work and in his ministry that he began. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely remarkable when you think about that. Forty days he spent speaking to them. And then we have this really interesting moment here. And so it gives us this summary, Luke does, of 40 days. And he told them that the Spirit of God is going to come. And he's going to tell, he teaches them about the kingdom of God for an extended period of time. And then it's this kind of funny parental moment at the beginning in verse 6, where the disciples say, after all of this time talking about the kingdom, it's like, when you are about to go out with your spouse for an evening away from the children, you say, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to do this. Now, don't forget this. Um, we're going to be gone for this amount of time. Uh, so-and-so is in charge. Don't forget uh, this is what's for dinner. And as you're getting ready to leave, your child goes, what's for dinner? <laughs> and you're going, wait a minute. Didn't I just sit and tell you? And so we have kind of a similar moment here where they say, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and the disciples go, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel again? And almost it's like they're just missing something here in this moment. But it's verses 7 and verses 8 that I want to concentrate on. And verse 8, I think, gets most of the attention, and rightfully so. But there's something in verse 7 that is significant. And, and what's going to happen here is Jesus says three things. There is one thing that is not for us, and there's two that are for us. And he begins in verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed. In other words, leave to God what belongs to Him. 
In this statement, it's like Jesus is striking to the core of man's sin, this need for control and this need for autonomy. Leave to God what belongs to him. Church, the mystery of God's sovereign control, God's control, not ours, over time and over periods of time is the coal that stokes the fire of mission for the church. The reality that God is in control, that God ordains the times, that God ordains the seasons should be the confidence and the comfort that, that, that is the church's thrust into the world. And it's not that it's simply not possible for us to know the unrevealed will of God. But that we must resolve in our own hearts that in God's wisdom that it's not profitable for us, nor is it good for us to know the times and the seasons which he has ordained. And I was thinking about this as well. What happens, we've, you've probably asked this question to yourself before. If you knew that you had a week to live, how would you live? You would probably live radically different than you are going to live this next coming week. In other words, it's a, it's a similar thing where God is saying to us, live as though your days are few. Live as though time is, is of little quantity left for you. It's God's control. It's God who apportions everything. Ecclesiastes 3 declares that there's an appointed time for everything and that God has made everything appropriate in its time. Brothers and sisters, this is just the very simple point that I want to make in this. With time being in the hands of God, let's live as though there is little time left. And it's not for us to worry ourselves with, with what we'll be and the fruit necessarily of what we put our hands to and the outcome that we desire and that we perceive. But let's give to God what is God's and let's allow Him to be Lord over those things and to be in control of those things because is He not infinitely better infinitely more merciful, infinitely more able and capable and powerful to do that which we desire. Is he not? It's not for us, church. It's not for us. It's for God. And this is interesting. I, James, in the, in the well-known portion of James chapter 4, where he says this in verse 13 and 14, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and a trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But then listen to what he says in verse 17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Church, it isn't simply enough to acknowledge that time is short and then to do nothing of it. It's actually a sin not to do what we ought to do. And is that not an issue of control? The very thing that Jesus was getting at, saying, don't worry about that. That's not for you to concern yourself with. You're not in control of that. I am. It's not for us to know, church. It's for God. So that's what belongs to God. But now what is for us, and we know this well, but look at verse 8. Jesus states two things. The first is that you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, secondly, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I just so appreciated the, the, the continuity between what Jim was sharing on of the gospel in Israel. And now here we are today in Western U.S. at the ends of the earth. We are those at the ends of the earth today. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice the order here. Receive and then be. We've said it a few times within the last six months as we studied through Nehemiah and Ezra that we must be who we are. Live, in other words, how you were created for. We've been made new, we've been regenerated, we've been made alive, we've been empowered by the Spirit of God. Therefore, church, let us live as though we are those things, new, alive, and empowered to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. So you will receive power. Again, I don't think that this is a truth that can be overstated. I don't think it's, it's not right for us to, to spend too much time away from this text, reminding ourselves what is true about us as believers. Again, Pentecost, that has not yet happened in this moment, but will soon, was, is, a, is a seminal moment in Christian history. It marked the day when the, the kingdom or the powers of the age to come came and rested upon this present age. Think about that for a moment. The powers of the age to come rested upon this present age at Pentecost. It signaled, church, that God's kingdom having defeated the kingdom of the earth, having defeated Satan's kingdom, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now it, he rules and his kingdom expands in the victorious Christ Jesus through his people. That's what Pentecost signaled. That the reign and the power that was present in Jesus' ministry has now been transferred or given, is, is the right way of saying it, given to God's people to continue in the work that Jesus began. We know this, right? I'm not saying anything that we don't know this morning, but are you guys hearing my heart? Church, to stir this in us. This is what we are created for. This is what we're created for. Now, as his people, we embody and we display the power of God's kingdom you will receive my spirit, supernatural signs, manifestations of heavenly power. They testify to the victorious and, and, and commanding authority of Jesus Christ. And this spirit now marks Jesus' followers now, us, as what? As a reminder of the deposit and the guarantee that is ours in Christ that will one day be fully recognized. So the mission of the church is the labor of the kingdom of God is, is a Holy Spirit empowered and a Holy Spirit affected work. That's the essence of it. If we get this wrong, church, we're missing the joy of what it is to be a follower of Christ because it's by His Spirit that He does it all. So why is this important for us? Because it's not us, it's God. It's our confidence that as we obediently and faithfully and boldly take up the work of the gospel, that we know with certainty that His Spirit, that enables us, His Spirit will open eyes. He'll release captives. 
He'll bring comfort to those who mourn, right? Those things that the Spirit of God is upon me to preach good news, to proclaim that the doors are open to the prisoners. Amen? This is why the Spirit of God has come, church. This is what the church is called to be. So whether we're speaking truth to a co-worker or whether we're loving the needy in the name of Christ Jesus this last week or whether we're speaking the gospel to our family members who are unbelieving or some other effort that seeks to advance God's kingdom on earth, our rest, our confidence is knowing that it is not us, but it is God who works in us in order to fulfill his great purpose. It's God in us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I don't think I need to tell you, and I'm not going to take the time to teach it, but in case there's a disconnect in your mind between Acts 2 and present day, in faith, when you come to Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. It's the work of the Spirit of God that made you alive and that brought you to revelation and understanding and your eyes open to who God is. The Spirit of God rests within you today, church. Imagine yourself in this moment because Jesus is speaking to us as much as he was speaking to his disciples. And then, of course, he says, you will receive and you will be. This, empo the, this empowering, this receiving results in a new purpose, a new orientation of life. You will be my witnesses. They come hand in hand. You will receive and you will be. We don't get the power without the witness, church. It's the both together. One is given for the sake of the other. This here lies a summary of the entire Christian life. We've not received simply for our own personal pleasure and personal fulfillment. We, see, we have received in order that we might be witnesses of what we have been given. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ, would now give power to his followers to be his witnesses through these things. Listen to this. First, through proclamation. The Spirit of God has been given to his followers in order that there would be proclamation. And we see this immediately following Pentecost. Jesus is saying, in, or, in other words, for us, this is the new way. This is the pattern. This is the model that you can expect to follow. Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven through the miraculous healing of the beggar at the gate beautiful, on their way to the temple. And they pass by this man who they probably had passed by a number of times, but there was something that was different and something new this time. The Holy Spirit had been given to them. And what do they say to them? I don't have what you're asking for, but here's what I do have. And the result of that is the guy makes a commotion. And so in Acts chapter 4 then, we see another reason why the Spirit of God is given for the proclamation of the gospel message itself. And Peter and John are standing amongst the, the authorities within the temple and they're proclaiming what is true about the gospel. And don't forget too, these disciples of Jesus, these are regular individuals. These are not seminary students with MDivs and PhD in Old Testament theology. These are men like each one of us, ordinary and it was even said that some are unlearned. But what do they have, church? They have the Spirit of God to give them the words to speak, 
to bring to mind the truth that had been deposited within their hearts. Are you getting this today? So the Holy Spirit was given to witness through proclamation. The Holy Spirit was given to witness the overcoming of Satan and his demons. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That is why the Spirit of God has been given, that we witness and testify that Satan has been defeated and he no longer has rule and reign over the hearts and minds of men, but it is now Christ Jesus resurrected and ascended in all authority. Thirdly, that we witness to the overcoming of sin. Romans 6, 13, Paul says, don't present you as members. Sorry, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't write the right verse down. <laughs> don't present yourself as members to sin, essentially, or as instruments of unrighteousness is what Paul's saying in chapter 6. He says, but present yourselves as those who have been brought from death to life. And then at the end of it, he says that you're not under the law, but you're under grace. There's no longer sin has the rule over you anymore. We testify by the Spirit of God that Christ, through Christ Jesus, we overcome sin. That is what we witness to. And then finally, church, we witness to the exercising of the gifts of grace, the charismata that we've spoken about. The Holy Spirit has been given to us that we would display and manifest his gifts of grace as he wills and apportions. Again, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is why the Spirit's been given to us, church. So these four aspects of witnessing, the proclamation, the overcoming of Satan, overcoming of sin, and the exercising of the gifts of grace, these aspects, they encompass the entirety of the Christian experience. All of it is a Holy Spirit-empowered way of living. It's not about building up our 401ks. It's not about vacationing at all the best spots while those things aren't inherently bad. They become primary in our hearts when the primary reason is what God is saying here. You have received power to be my witnesses. Church, let's be his witnesses. This is the new way of life. We're created for this, right? May this church be captivated by this truth. May we live this way. And listen, by the grace of God, we don't go from here to here. God is kind and he's patient and he's gracious and he brings us along. But we must submit to his lordship and we must acknowledge that, yes, okay, God, this is true. Show me in my heart where I'm not living in accordance with what is true. And God will kindly and gently bring you to where you need to be. Brothers and sisters, let's be a witnessing and proclaiming people. And it doesn't mean we gotta leave here and go stand on the corner with signs. You can do that if you want. But that's not, that's not the, the end goal. It's the totality of the Christian life witnesses to the resurrected Christ Jesus through the, what I just said. Yes, it is the proclamation of the gospel, but it's also how we live our life. We live free we, by the overcoming of sin through Christ Jesus. We live unhindered 
because the enemy is defeated. Amen? May the Lord give us grace for this today and just stir our hearts.